This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and for the 115th, that's right, 115 of 170 minutes of Michael Mann's 95 crime opus Heat, I'm joined by one half of, I think, Australia's best movie podcast. Uh, She is an absolute fantastic film critic, writer, novelist, um, and, uh, and she's... One of, I think, th- this will be the third of four official Hellers for Hyphenous hosts um, that have been on One Heat Minute. I am so thrilled that this talented lady has decided to join me um, because we had, obviously, Paul and Lee do the 91st minute. Lee and Paul separately do it, but I'm graced with the presence of Rochelle Semenovich. Rochelle, welcome to One Heat Minute. Thank you so much, Blake, and thanks for um, pursuing me. I think I may have been one of your more reluctant um, guests on the show. You said yes, so that's not as <laughs> not reluctant. <laughs> so there have been quite a few no's, but but I appreciate it. No, look, um, you know, uh, I, I say that genuinely. If you haven't listened to Hell is for Hyphenates and, and, you know, I think just just eclipsing, you know, just over a hundred episodes um, of that great show, monthly cataloging, you know, every great filmmaker in their entire filmography. I've been lucky enough to be on the show. Rochelle's a part of it. It's it's a huge thing. And uh, I, it was really important for me to be a completist um, to get all of you guys on the show at some point. So um, uh, it was really I was worth the wait, I'm sure, Rochelle. <laughs> well, I think one of my... Um concerns about about being on the show was that I hadn't watched Heat but then when I started watching Heat again I realized I had watched it and had forgotten it which probably is (laughs) Um, but um, delving a little more into your project and and I've listened to so many great episodes um, today in preparation I just have to say I'm in awe of your obsessiveness <laughs> tendencies and the, the attention and detail um, that you are lavishing on this film. And I think it's actually a great privilege to watch a film in this way these days. Even to watch a film for the second time is a big privilege for me because I feel like I'm just always scrambling to keep up with new releases. And um, I totally, and- I totally agree. I, I think you know, exactly like you said, there's some, there's some film critics I was reading about, you know, you read about, different folks methods and there's some there's some uh people in more senior sort of editorial positions won't review a movie unless they've seen it twice mm. because they re- you know they might have less remit to actually review and way more sort of on the edit you know you know being a, a sort of editor and i just uh, yeah I, I think it's this weird thing anthony lane used to say a quote which was you either have to go see the film on opening night and file your review before the end of the weekend. So his assumption was the movie was coming out on Friday in America. And he's like, or only review it 10 years later. 
And so it was this weird, interesting dichotomy that you could have seen it many, many times. You could have thought about it. You could have recontextualized it. And so, yeah, I think that's one of my favorite things about doing this as well as, um, you know, sort of still uh, tinkering and dabbling with, you know, short, short form criticism. This long form thing is just so, it's such a nice thing to just go back and just pour over like a piece of art over and over again. I do wonder if it's a particularly uh, male thing that you're doing here. Um, <laughs> and it, it kind of... Sorry, you nearly made me spit my drink all over the, the microphone just now. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, possibly. And, and this film is, is about obsessive tendencies, obsessive workaholic people whose, whose work is their life. And, um, I, yeah, I mean, I, this isn't an interview with you, but I would just love... <laughs> <laughs> to know if how how much you identify with these characters, Blake. Deeply. <laughs> Deeply, yeah. Um, on an upcoming episode, I, and I won't spoil too much of it, um, but the great Matt Zola-Zeitz, who is currently mm. the editor-at-large at, at RogerEbert.com, um, a Pulitzer Prize-nominated critic himself, um, Matt said when we were talking about the minute, he goes, each of the minutes that you use in this show is just a portal for you to access your own issues. It's just to work through it, you know, like we're just going through every minute and you're sort of staring into these extreme versions of this obsessive character um, or excessive characters or, you know, obsessive archetypes and you sort of get to work through your own shit. And I sort of was like, I'm sure for everyone who eventually listens to the episode, I can't wait to share it. But you, like I was cackling, like, going, oh my God, I'm, I'm being psychoanalyzed and it's just spot on. Like I've, I've been made, so to speak. I feel the heat around the corner when people like you, Rochelle, ask, Blake, are you really just like an obsessive person? <laughs> well, the answer I have to always give now is like, yes, I'm 115 episodes into a 170 minute like project the podcast that the average length of the episodes that we're talking is like 45 minutes so 45 minutes per 60 seconds of screen time you know uh it's it's a lot love it it's a lot it's a lot (laughs) but yes speaking of obsessive men uh the 115th minute is one of my favorite minutes in the, in the last year of this project. Um, so I'm thrilled to talk about it with Rochelle. And just to contextualize, if you guys are catching up or is this is your first ever episode of One Hit Minute, welcome. Thank you so much for listening. Um, but we go through chronologically 60 seconds of the film and it is from the theatrical Warner Brothers Blu-ray, not the definitive edition. It's a slight seconds out in the definitive edition um, from 20th Century Fox. But the scene... To place it is the heist has just ended. You know, we are, we're just out of this epic centerpiece of the entire film. And news um, is breaking that not only has this insane assault taken place in downtown LA, but that armed robbers have killed police and armed robbers have been killed. And we get this great moment into Elaine Chirito, Michael Chirito's wife, Tom Sotomayor's wife, just she is uh, on the uh, the cusp of this frame, about to hear the news of the uh, of the robbery, and then we go into Kim Staunton, who plays Lillian, um, Don Breeden, uh, the amazing Dennis Haysbert in this movie, um, having what I like think is like the the closure to one of the most perfect little 
asides ever in a movie. You know, he's like the sort of tragic hero and the indictment on sort of the American um, uh, penal system. So I'm uh, I'm I'm going to hit play on this for Rochelle and I. We're going to watch it and then we're going to come back and unpack it with you. And it begins with this really beautiful fallout moment and it ends with Jeremy Piven with less hair than he has now. So take a listen and we'll come back and we'll have a talk about it. Out into the street. Claudia Newman, live on the scene. She has the latest. Claudia? This afternoon, this neighborhood was terrorized by a bank holdup gone wrong. With the streets full of midday shoppers and kids, police and armed robbers... Excuse me, young bartender. I'm going to Michael Torito is one of four men involved in the foil bank robbery. We're gonna get you, Mitch. Also fatally wounded another suspect, Donald Green. Nice. Multiple gunshot wounds during the extensive gunfire between police and suspects. Oh, I told him. Told him. All right. All right. All right. So, he's got blood loss and shock. I'm going to give you quarter grain vials of morphine for the pain, okay? Subcutaneous injection. Bottom line, Rochelle. Bottom line. What a minute. Yeah, what a minute. I mean, bottom line for me is that, you know, the um, Donald Breeden character is one of the most minor characters in this whole um, film, and yet... Um, he's at the heart of it and the tragedy of what happens to him sort of, you know, comments on and echoes the tragedy of what's happening to all these other people. Um, so when we see um, Lillian gradually, you know, the dawning realisation that her husband has, has or partner or whatever, has been killed, it's it's like it hits so hard and it's just a few it's just a few moments, but it's. I think um, when when he dies in the car, um, that to me is the most devastating death in that whole death-filled scene, um, you know, of mayhem with the the bank robbery. And when she realizes that this has happened to him, I mean, yeah, it's it's the most tragic moment of the film to me. Yeah, I I would totally agree. That that little. Those moments, you know, her, it's such a, like like you said, it's such a minor character, but I just remember so vividly now, like if I think back on Heat, like I think back on, I try and think about it before this project and now in the middle of it. And before this project, he was like a great, he was a great character. And for me, he grew on me after many viewings. But I just didn't realize how important it was. And I also didn't realize the craft and just the perfection of, you know, to tell a sprawling narrative like this and to take a little, to, to make this little Dickensian subplot yeah. where you're sort of examining, um, uh, you know, the, the sort of plight of an African-American male who's actually trying to get back on the stage straight and narrow. Like someone who's legitimately doing everything they can to not go back to the life um, and being rewarded, you know, and being trusted and being, you know, uh, told that they, that their partner is proud of their efforts, even though he feels like that's so empty um, to, tr- to try. And that 
instinct for him to go back to it here, you just, it's, in the heist, it's like, it, it takes no time with his death. Like there's so many, you know, there's some unfortunate deaths in the heist on both sides. It doesn't take much time with his death, but when his head's on that steering wheel and there's sort of this exhale as that car stops, you're like, oh God, like the worst possible fate. The worst possible fate. And then this this little aside, this little flash, they do it with they do it with Elaine um, in the few seconds previous. But I love that she's kind of that Michael Mann in this moment even gives her a scene or gives her this beat as this choral music's playing, mm. where she, where the bartender ignores her. The mm. bartender ignores her for like when she first goes up there, and yeah. so it's only the fact that the bartender ignores her so briefly that she sort of like continues to wait and then glances up at the television. And that's when you get this moment. It's 31 seconds into the minute. I've got it sitting over my shoulder for Rochelle and I to watch while uh, you guys are talking, but this is just the beginning of her realization is starting to dawn on her face and you're watching her just, just try and hold it all together. And she knows instantly. She's just like, I did everything I could, but it wasn't enough. Yeah, I mean, we don't, she didn't know that this was happening, right? She didn't know he'd gone to do this. Nope. Um, So there's just this profound disappointment that, you know, she has not been able to save this man. And, Hmm. you know, that central theme of this film is that the women and families are not enough for the men, you know. Um, (laughs) To me, I mean, you say every episode is a portal into your um deep psychosis or psychology. (laughs) You know, I've always found workaholism to be, to be really abhorrent. I've, you know, it's something I've decided to never ever be with a man who would put his work before his family. And so for me, this whole movie is about workaholic men who cannot see the value of what they have right in front of them. It's not enough for them. It's their ego. It's the it's the their identity. Their male ego is more important than life. It's a death urge. It's a death. <laughs> so there, that's my. So Blake, I'm not trying to interview you. Is what you said earlier, <laughs> but um, I I do uh, I I I hear you. I I hear you. And yeah, like I think you're absolutely spot on. It's and it's about it's that weird that I, I like how you put it there. It's for these guys, this death urge is also, um, it manifests itself in like a, a programming. And I think Neil's the most rigid and his like philosophy becomes a program. It's like a spot the heat 30 seconds around the corner, drop everything, have nothing that you're connected to, you know, live with this discipline, this program, and it will, it will ultimately keep you alive. But what are you being kept alive for? Um, mm. And so, it, yeah, it's that it's that real that real tension of like, can you ever just pause and be happy? But yeah. but I but I I just want to reassure the listeners that right now, as we're recording, I've waited until my both my beautiful babies and my lovely wife have gone to bed, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and you know, uh, 
I, I do know, I do love the family that's in front of me, and I'm also allowed to be obsessed with this movie, just in case you were wondering if I was like abandoning my family at home for anyone who's listening. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, but I'm still nonetheless fascinated with these guys and that law and 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 why what's the continual wrestle? Because at the end of it, and I think that's what's really important about this heist, you know, we're seeing the fallout of a failed heist. But at the end of it, one that wasn't a failure, what does Neil do? He just goes and sort of wallows in that beautiful sequence that mirrors an Alex Colville painting where he goes back to his home, you know, back to his home, his empty home in Malibu and just stares out to the sublime ocean, just lapping basically at his windows and just stares out and he doesn't feel fulfilled, I would imagine, in that sequence. Nothing of that says, I'm super happy. And I'm really comfortable and my job is fulfilling. No. And, I mean, in, depiction is not endorsement. I don't think Michael Mann's, no, you know, no. glorifying these characters. I mean, his whole point, this is a very um, relationship-focused heist film. Um, the women are given more uh, characterization, more scenes, more interesting things to do than in most um, gangster heist crime films. Um, yes. And for that, that is why I found it really interesting. I think that's, I mean, it's one of my least favourite genres, which is probably why I'd forgotten I'd seen it. And <laughs> I, I saw it at the cinema when I was quite young and, and off in a world of European art cinema and Australian films. And so it wasn't kind of my focus. But now I'm, you know, 20-odd years older and I see so many more things in it and I see that it's actually quite a quite a mature and wise film about um, the relationships between men and women. So, you know, I, I'm not at all dissing your fascination with it. <laughs> no, no, I know. But, I, but, it's, but it's a good, it's a good wrestle. It's, 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 it, I think that what you described is that this movie, this movie for all the people who saw it for the first time, and, you know, there's a, there's a few amazing obsessives that I spoke to who, you know, were immediately obsessed with this movie. Um, and, you know, some of them are like Joe Lynch and Connor Ratliff and, um, and you know, the the incredible uh, uh, suite of folks, Sean Burns, Niall Schwartz, that have been on this show. Um, and they watch it and they immediately found that something else. But to your point, there's been so many people like you, Rochelle, who've watched Heat one time, remembered and said, oh, either remembered or didn't remember it too well. Just said, I think I saw that. Yeah, De Niro Pacino, sounds familiar. And then they go back and watch it and like, wow, that, this actually is has something. It has a philosophy. It has this sort of internal examination. It's, in, you know, it's, it's got this, you know, I, I love how you said, guys with obsessive tendencies and women and families like that actually have something to do in this genre instead of and have agency and drive the plot and, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's, a, it's a really that's, – that's why I keep coming back. I come back to this minute. What do you think about Elaine? We've talked about Lillian Kim Staunton, who's on the frame at the moment. Elaine's an interesting one because I think what you touched on earlier was that we know that Lillian doesn't know anything about the heist. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's a gr- the great scene when they're deciding to go ahead with this heist, uh, the, the the bank heist, uh, where De Niro's asking his crew, you know, do you want to go ahead? There are higher risks, but there's a bigger reward. So, you know, maybe the the risk is you know the 
the risk is worth the stretch. Or sorry, the prize that they're going to get. And he says to Michael Torito, so that's Tom Sizemore's character, he says, oh, you know, Elaine looks after you. You've got a lot of stakes in the freezer. Mm. And that's their parlance for like, you know, you've saved money, you've got property, you've been looked after, etc. And he gives that line, the action is the juice. But this is a different perspective, right? This is the wife seeing that it's happening on TV and that it's failed, but she's complicit in it. She knows about it. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't get to stare. You don't get to stare in her face like you stare in Lillian's face. I think that's a really interesting choice in this scene. You see her look back at the television, and you can only see when she stands here. You can only sort of see her face in the reflection of the newsreader. I can't even see that. It's but, it's 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 yeah. If you're staring it right up to it, you can sort of see it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so much more tragic with the Lillian character, yeah, because she's fought against this. She's tried to pull the man away from this, you know, this death drive. She's tried to save him and she has failed. Whereas I think, you know, for Elaine, it's perhaps the moment where she's like, I knew this moment was coming all along and I I haven't stopped it and I've, you know, she's she's part of it. Um, But, yeah, they have one of the sort of more companionable-seeming marriages in the um the gang don't they definitely sort of like the family that really works and when the michael chirito character says what does he say the action he, is the juice yeah, you're like oh you dick he's given you all the outs possible too right he's like it, it, that's what's such a funny thing it's like it's in that moment de niro's almost going don't do this you've got the least you, you've got the best possible situation and yeah. and there's and and we know that this job has got maximum consequences. Yeah. But also, then when you see him in the heist, he does relish it. Like he sounds like a golem in that bank. He's like, "Sit down, or I'll kill you." You know, like all this. He's loving it. He's absolutely having a ball. Where the other guys are like, just in the zone. These, you know, they're all for the job. The high order violence is only just a is 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 not what they're there for. But yeah. they're willing to do it. But Michael's that weird one. He's he's definitely got some more issues that he's battling than perhaps the other guys. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we have to acknowledge that it, it's such an important thing for a man in this culture and for women also. But so much for a man to be good at something and to be recognised by his peers as being good at something, and that is why the Donald Breeden character is so humiliated by, by working in this kitchen where he's not even allowed to cook. You yes. know, he can't and doesn't even have the dignity of cooking something. He's, what, emptying the trash and doing the dishes. And so when he's sort of asked to do this, to be the driver, it's kind of, it's not that he's after the money necessarily or no. the, uh, it's, it's doing something he's good at and being respected for it. And, you know, that's kind of the pull, isn't it? And, um... Yeah, I I think that's kind of the heart of of what keeps you know all the all the male characters doing things that are that are damaging to you know their their wives and children. Yeah, I, I think you touched on something or articulated it in a different way than I've ever thought about it with Don Breeden, as in just simply the respect of I am good at something mm. because you know often we've talked about sort of really explicitly in that it's the 
it's also just being ground down. It's 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 being so utterly disrespected in that other job. But even when he is cooking, he's still nothing, and half yeah. of his money's being taken away, and he's disrespected every day that he walks into that place. And he can do a phenomenal job. He can still yeah. be a great grill man. He can still cook really well. But this this like weedy little boss played by the great Bud Court is just like grinding his humanity out. He's just enslaved in here and he knows that this guy's just going to manipulate him and, and grind him down until he, his parole's over and then he's going to bounce out and hopefully get something else. But it's that weird thing of maybe it is. Maybe it's just as simple as that. And it fits totally with this movie. It, it fits totally with the ethos of the film is that you want to be doing something that's really good. Like, you know, Pacino says it a hundred times in this movie, this crew is good. This crew is good. So if anyone's working with that crew, they're good. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in that earlier scene that we see um, Donald Breeden and Lillian chatting and she says, I'm proud of you. And he says, what the hell are you proud of me for? Like he doesn't feel proud of him himself. And being proud of himself is, is a driver. It's a key. It's the whole point of living, you know, self-respect. Um, and her being proud of him is, is not going to cut it. It's not enough. Yeah. But I love that. God, that scene's so great. You can tell he wants to start a fight too. Yeah. You can tell he wants to start a fight. I love just reflecting on it in the context of what we're watching now is that, you know, um, he's there going, oh, Miss Lily. And she goes, oh, I met, I met the owner or whatever. And he's, and he's starting to arc up. You know, I did time for something that motherfucker does every day. Yeah, yeah. And and, and when she she's says something like, um, "Can you just hold on until we find something better?" Or yes, you know, can you just hold up. on? Yeah, can you just hold on? And he does. He doesn't. That's such and, and 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 it's also that like I think you call it the death drive as well. It's like that. There's something about just action as well, like being able to take action in 30 seconds flat. Because Mm. for him, even though he might only have to work there in the grand scheme of things for six months, it's still doing time on the outside. Like he's just been in jail for an indeterminate amount of time, long enough to have been in jail when Neil was in jail. So we know that by, you know, however long that may be. But for him to be and they may have even known each other before, but for him to be there and then come out and feel like freedom is at his fingertips, but realistically it's not. And then Neil going, yes or no, I need an answer right now. Yeah. And him at least having the choice to take an action instead yeah. of indecision. Cause like right now he has to wait it out and that's Lillian, you know, being the voice of reason, you know, like oh, you just got to wait it out. We can try and find something better. Yeah. All those things are no, none of them are unreasonable. Everything's like completely spot on. She's perfect, but um. But yeah. don't you think there's something about the casting of this character too, um, Dennis Haysbert, in that we just feel like he's a good man. Like oh, yeah. I don't know why we think that. It's his maybe it's his face. He has a beautiful face, and he's he's played a good person in so many other um you know, film and TV roles. But there's something noble yeah, about him. Something, we want him to be saved. Yeah, he's he's presidential. Like, literally, this is <laughs> my most favorite, you know, his most famous role is 24. He's the president, you know. He's the, he's got the, yeah, I think that regal tone. He's, he's it, well, at, at this age, he's like a young, beautiful, like his most, at his most beautiful in his whole life. He's, 
and and you just see like he's got this vitality and and they've got a great relationship. He's in like color that not not really many other people are in the movie. You know, like he dresses in color. He drives a yellow car. I think they they drive. He wears the green, you know, an earthy green t-shirt. He just feels very vibrant when he comes on screen. You immediately like him. And it's also you know, um yeah, Bud Court's just so ruthless. We we I think I think Michael Mann likes regardless of where you are on the spectrum of like crime or not crime he doesn't like people who disrespect anyone and that's what bud court does so like the fact that our guy doesn't just like snap bud court in half i think you're immediately on his side in that opening scene where where they're together but just going back because you said here like he's this regal character he's an amazing performer he's immediately likable but just to sort of focus in on the score here the, the the choral score that is starting at the beginning of this minute and that leads into the Lillian moment. Man is, I think, doing such a great job in this moment, and and Elliot Goldenthal, who's the composer, is sort of in, in the editing. They're sort of presenting the tragedy almost equally from a score perspective. From like a, it's almost like we're telling you right now that there's within this tragic fallout of this heist people have died and it's going to impact their families. And it's like giving the families a moment, which is rare in heist movies in general, as you were talking about before. And it's sort of saying, this is happening. This is a tragedy on both ends. And you sort of, unfortunately for Elaine here, who's sort of holding a coffee tin or whatever she's holding and her reflections in, you know, her reflections in this news anchor's faces, they're on, on, on the ground, they're hearing about it. But it's the Lillian's face that comes up in a couple of seconds time that that's where all the tragedy is. That's where all the emotional core of this minute and the real fallout, like the real um, where you feel deeply affected by it. It's all in Lillian. It's kind of like, well, if you're complicit, Elaine, we do empathize with you. But being complicit in this, it's kind of a consequence of life. It's a consequence of the life that you're being a part of. Yeah, I mean, the, the choral score there is just so um, beautiful. It gets quite loud yes. um, and kind of overpowering. And it's just for a few moments, but it's like giving dignity and a dignified moment to all the people who've died. Um, yeah. It's, it's kind of like a little funeral, yes, I guess. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it is like a little – this is a little – and it's, it's so – despite the deafening nature of the heist – there's not a lick of music, mm. you know. There's not. There's not a. There's not a. There's not a lick of music for like most of the scene. There's the the score finally picks up it when in Michael's death in that final anticipation where you see him go for this young girl, and he picks her up and he uses her as a human shield. And Vincent gets that that great mm. that that great kill shot that sort of saves it, you know, saves that little girl. And then he heads in and he grabs her and he runs her out of the scene. Um, but the, you know, the the. This is like a, the obituary. This is literally the obituary because it's on the news. It's happening right now. This is who they are. But when we come in here, it's what? About 15 seconds into this minute. The majority of this next sequence is all Lillian. God, such an amazing scene. She just catches onto that monitor. And yeah, 32 seconds into this minute, you get her. She begins her realization. 
there's a flicker of her lip and you're just starting to see flecks of emotion come over her face. It's like seven seconds long, Rochelle. It's like seven seconds, really, of like conveying emotion and it has that much weight and power in this movie. Isn't that just well, nuts? I'm, I'm sure everybody who's been on your show has said this, but it's such a long movie, um, it's directed with such economy. It's written, directed and performed with such economy. Like every single moment is doing so many things. Yes. Um, yeah. It's you, you talked about an obsession with European cinema. It's like things happening in silence or wordlessly and actors having to convey emotion and cuts that just like stare into people and just make them act. You know, it's like, so that's sort of the um, – in American cinema, it's like the Scorsese effect. You know, all all of those great Robert De Niro close-ups in every great Scorsese movie, um, uh, you know, sort of come to mind. But here, it's like she gets a, you know, fifteen seconds or thirty seconds on screen, and 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 she's doing so much and being a, a bookend to a story. And then the fallout here, we've we've had the funeral for for the heist and those people who are impacted positively or negatively. And then you get this gritty, this gritty moment. We come to the end. We see Jeremy Piven for the first time in this minute. <laughs> a change of the first time in this movie and the first time in this minute. A change of pace with twenty seconds to go. This is a really grotesque little uh, piece of surgery scene here. It strikes me more than other movies that usually have this kind of thing in them. Yeah, I mean, they're picking bullets out of Val Kilmer, I assume. I mean, you can't exactly see what they're doing from the angle of it. Um, we can sort of see Val Kilmer lying down and the doctor over him and then, you know, um, De Niro standing up there watching it and sort of wincing yes. as, you know, Val Kilmer's pulling away. And, yeah, it's it's a scene that immediately takes us from the carnage. Well, not immediately. There's been that little funeral, but... We've gone from the carnage of the of the heist and the shootout, and now we're looking at the people who've done that, yes. and yet feeling sympathy for this guy. He's got some bullets in him. It's, it, I mean, that's the power of empathy. <laughs> yes, yeah. We've we've just watched him lay waste, and we've seen even the even the smoking, you know, charred metal holes. You know, the the Swiss cheese of those police cars that are just done. You've seen people shot, you know, Chris Val Kilmer is, you know, famously does that amazing whole sequence where he's changing the magazine of the weapon and everything is, he's, he's, he's definitely right in the, in the thick of it. But yeah, that's, I think that's the power of this movie, as you said, about economy and just deft storytelling that almost immediately, whoever you're on screen with, you're like empathizing with them. So, you know, we know that Elaine is complicit, but the fact that you see her there, it's done. As soon as you see Lillian, even though her husband's just died as, as part of the heist, of course she's an empathetic uh, empathetic figure in any event. But then as, when you come in here, I think the choice to not be looking at Chris and to be looking at De Niro holding him down and wincing when he's doing it, I, I don't know. It's like this super visceral um, approach of like, it's, it's like fast-tracking you to empathize for them because the fact that De Niro, who's so tough, um, and has been so clinical as like wincing and grimacing at every single, you know, <laughs> metallic tweezer pull. You're like, oh, this is just like immediately you're, you're you're right back in. Okay, cool. These guys, 
Yes, they're bad guys. We've seen the high-end violence that they can dish out when something goes wrong. But right now, we're, we're, we're friends again. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's that it's part of the mystery of the film too, isn't it? That Whether the um, De Niro character is going to ditch Chris um, Val Kilmer and whether he he's just hanging on to see if he's going to die or make it or if he actually really wants him to make it or I don't know it's kind of that battle between between loyalty and self-preservation yes there's so much going on here it's like well how long is he going to wait you know yeah I've started picking up on that only recently going is there a version of Neil and maybe this is my like choose your own adventure think thinking and overthinking this movie is like is there a version of neil that that is willing to just let chris die because chris is a liability mm, as far know. as far as his escape because he's he knows everything intimately and he also has something that he doesn't want to lose in charlene and so you know you go in other movies we've seen the tropes before there's a betrayal on the cards to to save your life or at least to get a, you know, a suspended sentence or to keep your family out of trouble. And in this moment, it's that like, I think man here is, isn't, I think it's great because it, it plays the strings of that mystery. But also I think in some ways it continues to reinforce it. Like, no, Chris is Neil's guy. Like there are other disposable members of the crew, Treo, Michael, but like Chris is his guy who he like trusts and you don't, you don't ever imagine Michael sleeping on Neil's floor, you know, but you you can see Chris, when Chris is sleeping on his floor in that scene where they sort of dish out that philosophy at the beginning of the film. Um, That's true. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. yeah. I think they're like, there's something special right. and closer about them, but you're right. It is like in this moment, he's a massive liability. Mm. It's almost easier if he was dead because then Neil can just be alone. And mm-hmm. Neil's seems to function better when he's alone. Mm. Yeah, and yet we really want Chris to survive. Oh, I de- mean, desperately. Yes, it's the only sort of happyish ending of the film, really. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the that he gets away. Yeah, that's that's the sequel that that's the sequel of Heat. <laughs> that that has never been told. It's like old broken Chris, you know, becomes Neil and starts a crew in another city or something like that. Like that's the, that's, that's the great thing. And obviously the Ashley Judd's Charlene is like, and such an essential and amazing character in this movie. And the, the heartbreaking gesture scene, Mm. which I can't wait to talk to you guys about when it comes up to it. It's one of the, one of the highlights in the entire film that, that scene is just, that's really special in the context of the whole film and, and, and their story too. So you, you, you want Chris to get back to Charlene. You want them to have closure, even though right now we don't know what it's going to look like. Even though she's not that great a wife. <laughs> and nor is, <laughs> and even though he's not that great a husband. You just, we're just think like, they belong together. We're just like Neil. We're just like Neil. We like the little fairy tale version, you know, like she <laughs> sleeps with Hank Azaria like in the morning and then Neil has them out at a family dinner that night or a crew dinner, you know, where um, uh, Pacino, Vincent Hanna calls them the, the criminal convention. And we've just got these road co- rose-colored glasses for them. We're like, oh, isn't that nice? Only, Nobody... er- 
Only yeah. earlier today, she was banging another dude. <laughs> <laughs> but now they're happy dinner time. It's no problems. Everything's good. Yeah. It's just one of those things. Well, look, I think that um, this has been really great. And as De Niro says at the end of this, bottom line, bottom line is you need to subscribe to Hell is for Hyphenates and listen to the awesome Rochelle Saminovich and Lee Zachariah every month um, talking through. There is a big, I think there's a, a special event. I'm going to tease it on this because a special event style coming up. Can you, do you want to give any of your uh, secrets away, Rochelle, or are you guys going to just drop it as a big secret uh, uh, for fans of the show? I'm going to keep it mysterious, mainly because I'm not sure what Lee wants to do, but yes, <laughs> very special coming up soon. So very, stay tuned. Uh, uh, stay tuned. Very special episode um, uh, uh, with, with perhaps, the the format of the show is usually one guest per month. Maybe there may be more than one guest, maybe a multitude of guests, because who knows? There are still some filmmakers on the Hellas for Hyphenate sort of board, uh, 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 on the on the chess board of all of the great auteurs that have ever living living and working, um, that haven't been chosen. So uh, there's some hints and tips for you there, Rochelle. Thank you so much for being a part of the show um and and for a, although you were very elusive um it w- absolutely worth the wait as i said it's been a pleasure it's been really really fun thanks blake you are welcome at milan to plinsk uh plinsk, plinsk um uh <laughs> at m i l a n to the number 2 p i n s k on twitter that's probably the best place you can find Rochelle. Rochelle, anywhere else? I know you've got your own website, but is there anywhere else that you want to direct folks to for you? I write regularly for Screen Hub. Um, so I'm a journalist there. And yeah, just um, yeah, right, working for Hell is for Hyphenates as well and around the place. But yeah, Twitter's a good spot to find me. Excellent. Guys, thank you so much for listening. The 115th minute of heat is behind us. We've seen Jeremy Piven with way more hair than he's had in, uh, well, way less hair rather than he's had in the last 24 years. So you're going to see something pretty miraculous in the upcoming scenes. Um, thank you guys for listening. As always, oneheatminute.com. I've been Blake Howard. Blake is Batman on Twitter. Uh, and as always, we'll catch you on another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner. And hopefully, not with any metallic tweezers plucking out any bullet riddled carnage from your body with Robert De Niro wincing over the top. <laughs> <laughs>